Hi there, you're listening to the Sydney Ideas Podcast, where we bring you talks and conversations with great minds from the University of Sydney and beyond. Chochi Ravulo here. I'm a professor at the University of Sydney, and I had the pleasure and privilege of hosting a Talanoa, which is a shared conversation that was about Pacific regionalism and Australia. I was joined by geopolitics expert Dr. George Carter from the ANU and climate journalist and scholar Dr. Langi Pawiva Sherelle Jackson. Now let's get started with the Talanoa. And I'd like to ask our panel to further reflect with me on our first introductory question, which really goes to the essence of what does it mean to be part of this region, especially as people that might be living in the diaspora here in Australia or New Zealand or in the United States? But what does it mean for us to have an influence? And what does that mean when it comes to shaping the political and even environmental, but even broader socio-conversations around these particular areas? So the, the key question to start with is, who benefits from having influence and control across the region and why? Who would like to go first? Not sure. <laughs> <laughs> We're both Samoan, so we can do this all night long. <laughs> well, I can go first since Salah has uh, given me the honors uh, and his title is a little bit higher than my title back at home, so I'll do the deuce. First of all, I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land um, and say Tsalo Falava, uh, Falava. And thank you so much to the University of Sydney for having us here. Thank you to Professor Georgie for having myself here. Thank you. Um, and it's also great to meet uh, my dear brother, George, here as well. So this question, I love this question because it can be viewed in two different ways. One is who benefits as in who as in um, which global North power or which developed country benefits from influence in the Pacific. The natural answer, of course, is China. Natural answer is USA. But I don't want to talk about the global North influence. What I really want, the way I want to answer that question is those who truly benefit from influence in the Pacific are the indigenous peoples of the Pacific, mm. the Samoans, the Tuvaluans, the Ikiribas, and so forth. Mm. We are the true owners of the lands and the oceans that our people occupy and have voyaged and occupied for years, our ancestors. So who benefits? We benefit. But that benefit can only be sustained and truly be recognized if it is recognized in governance structures, if it is recognized internationally. So we can, you know, we can say all we can about how beautiful it is to, to own our lands and our ocean spaces. But if it's not recognized within government policy, if it's not recognized within international negotiations, when if traditional knowledge and indigenous knowledge continue to be ignored and sidelined, um, then that influence matters nothing. Langi, further to that, I actually wanted to just unpack something that sure. you just said and then I will hand yes. it to, to Salah. What is stopping those particular Pacific perspectives, ways of knowing and doing, being and becoming, also known as epistemologies and ontologies? I always feel smart when I say those words. Very smart. <laughs> what, what is stopping those particular views and values, practices and perspectives from actually breaking through and actually influencing this shared conversation? Colonialism, right? 
couple of white men, you know, um, came off of boats and decided that what they felt was right was what went. And so we discarded our values and our cultural and traditional knowledge that our ancestors handed down to us. And we took on Christianity that further suppressed a lot of our cultural practices and a lot of the knowledge and the practice that we had to maintain peace, that we had to sustain knowledge, that we had to like govern our villages and our, and our systems within districts. Um, we, we suspended all of those because we were told, you know, our leaders were killed in the process of trying to protect those very cultures. So that's what stops it. And it's not in my view, it's fact. <laughs> Thank you. I'd also like to acknowledge uh, the First Nation Indigenous owners of this land and also First Nations who are in this room. I'd also like to say uh, from all of us to all our Pacific Islanders who are in the room, who are also listening online to this great presentation of Sydney Ideas. Hopefully this podcast or this video inspires more work from not only this university, but also in this country in terms of unpacking, understanding, and engaging with the Pacific. Um, so we came together to understand influence. And this is very much a big part of the research that I undertake in the area of international relations diplomacy, influence, because we tend to think of it from, especially in my discipline of power and control who has the power and who tends to control. And this has also shaped the way that I explored not only regionalism, but also how external players engage in the Pacific, but also how Pacific countries participate in climate change negotiations, which is a very dear part of, of my research. But over the years, influence is not also, it's not just power, but it also runs parallel to something that I found that's much more deeper which is relationality. And that's something that uh, we're learning much more as we engage in understanding non-Western powers. Last week, we had a great lecture at the ANU on Indigenous and First Nations international relations. Very similar to what we're unpacking in what we say is oceanic or Pacific diplomacy, is that this uh, influence is not just about power, but it's also about relationality. It's very understudied, you know, part of the second question is, why, why don't we know about this? Uh, how do we engage in this? So our universities are at fault, very understudied. Our students are not taught this in, in Samoa, in USB Fiji, in Australia. We don't give it that command. We don't give it that same level of uh, how we uh, sort of privileged Western knowledge. It's the same thing that Sherelle is uh, un, um, unpacking here is in terms of traditional and indigenous knowledge. And so that's part and parcel of where it's, um, why it's missing, uh, sort of understanding. And so when we are thinking and talking and trying to engage in what Pacific, what influence is, let's not just focus on control and power, but also broaden our visions and also understanding into relationality, authority, and that's something that's embedded in a lot of our communities. And as our conversation will go along, I'll show you how that's unpacked now by governments in the Pacific, for regional organizations, 
And this is one of the great gifts that the Pacific has for the international society. Um, yeah. And that's, that's fascinating, this idea of relationality. You're talking about building and maintaining and sustaining relationships. Is that what's key and what is potentially missing in that broader influence piece by Pacific people for Pacific people? Mm. Um, I'll, and there are many ways uh, and sort of growing scholars who have looked at this. Um, some of the work that we're working on, really we look to theology and we look to education. These are some great scholars from the Pacific, like Upoluva'ai, um, Kapini Sanga, um, um, and uh, many others. Uparaki. Uh, they've understood that the Pacific also uses relationality, which is, stems from indigenous knowledge um, and indigenous ways of knowing or worldviews in their engagement. And so they've mastered contextualizing these ideas into how it works with community. So where am I going with the question here? Relationality. Relationality. It's about bringing back that it's not just about the control or the use of resources, which tends to be where a lot of our um, mindsets or, or worldviews tend to but it's also about how human beings live at peace and in harmony with nature and with resources. And the ideas around stewardship, that you are supposed to be caring for this environment and as you pass them along to the next generation. So it's, uh, in what they, as some would say, like Upoluva, I would say, it's a whole of life philosophy. We're hearing this from indigenous and First Nation scholars. They're saying this has always been part, that's always been, it's been here. Yet we haven't, within universities, uh, within our education systems, we haven't properly given the recognition and we haven't incorporated that into our thinking. Because it is part and parcel of something that's very important. Now, again, I'm a scholar that works around states' power and, uh, and I see this as a fundamental part of international relations. It's not just a fancy thing that happens locally here or in the islands here. I think it's something that's much more important uh, into international society. Yeah, fantastic. Georgie, if, yes. if I may add, because um, my brother here has touched on, on several aspects of um, perspectives in terms of viewing um, Indigenous knowledge, recognition, and bringing these issues into scholarship internationally and Australia's recognition of that. I think what's important also, um, well, first of all, disclaimer, I'm a village professor, as in I grew up in Sava on the island of Savai. So my knowledge of and understanding of Indigenous knowledge and traditional knowledge um, is really based on that village life mm -hmm. and understanding it from, first of all, not understanding English, learning English, and then understanding how people and international community perceive us. I think it's important to note that when I do say Indigenous knowledge, I mean from the ground, like the recognition of our own Indigenous knowledge by Indigenous people. Because this movement of um, getting recognition for ideas and traditional knowledge globally disregards the fact that the, this knowledge already existed mm -hmm. and were validated by our ancestors and our communities internally. So I think the bringing it to fore and bringing it through academic and through research 
is a second affirmation in, in a way. I just wanted to add that. No, I love that because I think generally when we look at the Australian way of looking at the Pacific, generally it has been quite paternalistic and yeah. we've been seen as the big brother or the uncle and that the islands need us as opposed to, no, the islands actually operated and existed with all of these perspectives prior to colonisation and it is about then revaluing a lot of those key concepts, right, especially around this notion of reciprocal living and this idea mm. of being able to live in the context of other people, not just ourselves. Yes. Yeah, okay, which actually leads to the next question that I have, which is about accountability, especially when it comes to outside influence coming into the Pacific. What levels of accountability exists? <laughs> 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 Let's go to macro, <laughs> micro. And so, um, sorry, if you could just repeat the questions on account. Yeah, I think at times we look at the region, we generally go, well, it's all fair play, you know, this neoliberal, it's, you know, fair game for anyone to come in and play in the Pacific. But when they come into play in the Pacific, are people held accountable for the impact and or the influence they may actually have in the region? Okay. Uh, thank you, Georgie, for that question. And um, I guess in one way to help um, answer this question is to also just have a look at the colonial legacy um, of external influence that this region, uh, ocean continent, has been always viewed uh, from the conquest of external players, European uh, and uh, uh, powers coming through for geopolitical conquest. We saw it in the times of the Spanish conquest in the 1500s, in the overtake of Guam. We saw this in terms of colonial administrations being established to look after um, adventurers who were coming towards the Pacific, beachcombers and traders. We saw the establishment in the 1700s and 1800s of colonies uh, through empire building. And we see the French, United Kingdom and the United States at that time setting up colonies. First World War, we then see a changing world. Uh, Australia becomes the colonial administrator of Nauru and Guam, and Japan becomes the administrator of Northern Pacific. We tend to forget during this time, during these uh, conquests, there was a lot of extraction of minerals from the Pacific, copra uh, in, from the agriculture, minerals from phosphate, the beginning of geological Ex, um, examinations, explorations for oil and gold. And so the region was at that part, not only, I mean, part of geopolitical conquest uh, by external play partners was to look for these resources, the plantation economies. And it brought along uh, adversaries that were created not by Pacific peoples, but people who were sitting at tables in Washington, in London, um, here very much in Canberra new um, um, sort of tensions that were not of their undertaking. World War II, we see um, the War of the Pacific, which then sees a new security theater and the Pacific recarved and uh, uh, with new lines of new uh, um, uh, partners now becoming, uh, you know, becoming colonial administrators. Decolonization, we then see communities, island communities, political communities now forged um, having to become independent nations. Cold War of the 19, uh, 1950s all the way to the 2000s sees these tensions play out between the Pacific, the West, 
and Russia. Again, now we see with the US and China fighting for primacy in this world, these conquests again are, are replayed again in front of our uh, in front of our um, handsets and our um, cell phones and the news that we get. So the region has always been, or the countries and the peoples have always been represented as these objects in these uh, geopolitical conquests. Never have we stopped and say, what is their reaction to all of this? Never have we asked to stop and say, what is their agency in all of this? And that's part and parcel of what we're saying with the other, the other type of research, which we are also uh, encouraging, is that greater appreciation of indigenous knowledge in indigenous ways, because for tens of thousands of years, this body of water and the people of Libya have thrived. They haven't been just objects of these geopolitical conquests. They have thrived. These players come and go, but the people and the cultures remain. And that's um, a, a fundamental truth that we need to unpack and continue to at least teach and research within our universities. That um, is a very powerful story, a very true story that needs to be carried on. Yeah. Mm. So something to start off with in that conversation. Mm. He knows a lot of history. He does. It's very impressive. <laughs> I'm like, I'm learning a lot right now. Likewise. <laughs> So in terms of accountability of the recipient country, that's a very interesting question. Um, is the recipient country obliged to be accountable for what it receives? Culturally, uh, in Samoa, if you receive a gift um, in the village or in a ceremony, a guy walks out and then broadcasts this what you received. Okay, family A has brought five pigs, 20 fine mats and two plates of food there is uh, a natural kind of uh, transparency mechanism that is inbuilt into our culture. Um, not so much when it comes to international relations because the government, the fam the, our country is the family and we protect the family. Um, and so if China is giving us 20 million and the US is giving us 20 million, we have no obligation to send the, the, the tattooed boy out to shout out the, the numbers. We may skew the numbers or be vague about the numbers, so we may, we may receive more. But that is also a strategy that occurs in the micro level, in the family level, so that families can naturally survive because you're, you know, amassing resources. So I like to ask that question, is the recipient country obliged? Like, are you obligated to, to, you know, disclose or to be accountable for the funding that you're receiving? Because in the same vein, you are being given conditions for that assistance and countries are having to meet these conditions. So are you also then asking us to be very open about it? Um, I think it's it's food for thought. And having worked at policy level in Samoan governments, it's it's definitely um, interesting to see from the inside uh, the perspective on that. It is a burden. Yes. And it's interesting to also talk about this idea of is there a hidden agenda when countries outside of the Pacific strive to give? And is, is there something that they need to be held accountable for? What do you think? I mean, realistically, aid and development is a tool of foreign policy. Yes. Um, countries in the Pacific are not naive to that, um, are very much uh, that thought. But it's also how countries in the Pacific, like every other country, react to 
that aid and development that it is a part of that foreign policy too. Um, I just had to go back to something that was um, in the last question about it wasn't just um, uh, the legacy of um, minerals and extra extraction. It is also a legacy of nuclear testing, huh? that the Pacific was also um, a grounds for testing by the UK, um, by the French uh, and the US of nuclear testing in the Pacific. And that's very important. And it's also related to, I think, a lot of what's on your mind about AUKUS. All right. I just wanted to bring that before we forget that <laughs> the Pacific was a grounds for nuclear testing. So it plays very heavily in the minds of leaders, in the minds of policymakers, and in the minds of youth. We should never underestimate the minds, um, the knowledge of youth that um, the Pacific has been that dumping ground for many of these uh, external players. And I wanted to highlight that before I forget that. Yeah, it's interesting because that actually touches on my next question around the lived experience of Pacific people and whether we take that into account when it comes to regional developments. Does that occur? Do we genuinely sit there and ask our Pacific peoples and communities in the islands whether their lived experience informs the next steps associated with regionalism? I'll start with this one. Then. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> the reason why I'll start with this is um, <clears throat> this is the pragmatism when you take in Indigenous lived experiences in policy. Because this development agenda that we have in the Pacific, just across the world, is a 30-year-old, 40-year-old uh, sustainable development model, which has been undertaken by governments. And over that 35-plus years, a lot of success, but many failures. Huh? You know, we hear the rhetoric of not fit for purpose. Uh, these practices are cut, uh, cookie cutters from other parts of the world in Bangladesh and Africa and transplanted in the Pacific. You know, models of economic growth do not go in line with the realities on the ground mm -hmm. and undermines cultures and ways of life and knowledge in the Pacific. Something that we've heard for the last 30, 40 years. So what's being practical? What's happening? All right. So the last 10 years, you know, the research has seen, and this is actual proof, that governments are now speaking out, are now speaking back. They're trying to take control of their agenda. Huh? Maybe not in the way of the full agenda, but in pockets. We're starting to, to find this. In the way of how they manage um, external um, donor agencies and how they operate in the Pacific. It's not perfect, but that's, a, that's a, an example of that. Part of it is what we now hear as the listening that Australia needs to do. Huh? That's part of that rhetoric of countries speaking out, but also friends of the Pacific in Australia speaking up that we need to do better. Huh? We need to be much more better in our work. In, 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 in and we're now seeing Indigenous knowledge starting to be incorporated in national policy, huh? using the way that it brings communities together in stakeholders. It's not just, here's the white paper, putting new ideas. They're incorporating Talanoa. They're incorporating in uh, their Talanga. They're incorporating their, their views and ways of how to conduct this. Where is this coming from? Because we're practicing that in universities through our research. These indigenous methods and protocols are now part of our university methods when we engage with Pacific communities. 
whether it be in Samoa and Fiji or Pacific communities here in Sydney and uh, in Auckland. These practices are used by our researchers. Our policymakers are starting to take that in. We see this, this new 2050 strategy, regionalism from the Pacific that we saw passed last year, speaks of people-centered development. Development that is informed by Pacific, that use Pacific practices from communities. It's not perfect, but we're starting to see these pragmatic approaches, not just by speaking out and say, stop, this is not good, but then also providing some of these solutions. Again, I go back to what some my favorite message, and I hopefully something, we need to do more. We need to, in our universities, in Samoa, in Fiji, and here in Australia, acknowledge that. Give us the resources for researchers to research that. Let us teach that to our secondary school, to our high school. Let us teach that to Canberra. That's something, you know, to our policymakers in Canberra. That's something we need to do much more better in, in that result. Yeah. Mm, Again, you know, learning quite a <laughs> getting a free lecture. Okay, so my perspective is um, centered around my understanding of how my late mother, who was a high chief and an indigenous conservation leader, um, integrated her voice into uh, regional meetings and regional initiatives and global um, international negotiations. And as an Indigenous leader, as a high chief from her village, she found a way to be heard at the international stage. And that was through like a very persistent, persistent approach. And she was smart about doing it. But it didn't. So she was one of the, um, the Indigenous leaders who was at the Rio Convention, which, as you know, this was one of the first conventions that integrated Indigenous people's knowledge into a UN convention. Um, quite historical. And then from there, we had this uh, flow on effect where Indigenous communities and representatives were then considered part of the negotiations. Slow but it's getting there. So in terms of like, how do you, as an indigenous person, say a farmer, a fisherman, or a chiefess, or a youth member from an outer village in Tuvalu, how do you integrate or be heard uh, at a, a regional meeting or through a, say, a gender initiative by the region? Almost impossible, almost impossible because you need resources, you need understanding of systems on the ground, and then you need empowerment through your local governments, through your national governments who have your voice heard. It took Greta, a light-skinned youth ambassador, to be heard around the world because she had the resources, the support of her family, and she made herself known and stood her ground. There were many youth ambassadors across the Pacific, across Caribbean, across Africa, who had been doing equally, if not more, in terms of the you know, climate advocacy that we never have heard of because they didn't have the same resources, access, and support that Greta had. Um, so my mother, God bless her amazing soul, she went the NGO route. Because the only way as a local can be, you know, can be heard in those spaces is to go through non-profits, non-government organizations, 
and um, cohorts. Uh, and that is also not necessarily a route where you will be heard. Because even in national and regional and international spaces, NGOs run parallel to governments. They don't run as part of governments, which is why they're called NGOs. So there are pathways for Indigenous people to be heard, but it's not easy pathways. Mm. Um, the best pathway is to work through their governments and integrate um, their priorities through national policies, say, for instance, uh, national environment policy, being part of consultations locally. But it's not an easy pathway and it's not an easy way forward. And it sounds like education is key. So my last question before I hand it to yourselves to ask us some questions is this idea of how do we ensure that Pacific people in the diaspora that, again, living in places like New Zealand and Australia and in the US can proactively contribute to this shared conversation and influence in the region? If I may, because I'm not working in mainstream academic uh, environments right now, um, I think it's really important for diaspora to acknowledge that they um, that they, that we live outside of our spaces um, and that we don't speak for our people, um, but we speak about and we may derive the knowledge and reflect on our experiences, but we certainly don't speak for them. I think it's extremely valuable to have more brown voices in academic space, to, be, to have more of you and you, because it's only through those lenses can you truly influence the scholarship that comes out. Because often, how many times have I read Pacific studies by white Australians, by Americans, by Europeans. It's only up until maybe about 10 years ago where there are Pacific scientists who were quoted or who were referenced in climate um, journals. It's mostly been those outside of the Pacific. So I think how diaspora can, can influence is by honoring the voices of those in the ground but also honouring your own lenses um, in integrating it into your research and how you can influence your colleagues where you are. Yeah, nice. So the Pacific diaspora are still representatives of their island heritage, but they're still doing it collectively mm -hmm. with our communities back home in mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. Um, my um, view of Pacific diaspora and their contribution to the Pacific is something very optimistic, but I also feel there's not enough. Mm. Uh, in terms of, I'll frame my views in terms of my, my sort of observation in Australia. And I'll start from this. I hope I see the day that I see a Samoa, uh, not a Samoa. <coughs> I hope I see the day I see a Pacific politician as a federal minister. All right. We need a lobby in Canberra. Sorry, I'm Canberra based. I'm expecting someone from you. It's wonderful to see Pacific leadership starting to grow across Australia. We have MPs from the Pacific, who of Pacific heritage, Pacific descent, now in, in these spaces. It's important, but that shouldn't be the goal, uh, the only goal. It's refreshing to see the arts where our um, communities are now leading in and showcasing um, because um, not only in the arts, but also in the business. Because I see this is where we are able to sort of 
all achieve what we're trying to um, work through is greater awareness of the Pacific in Australia. And it comes from the whole diaspora, right? Because part of uh, misconception of the Pacific is because diaspora don't have the platforms, enough platforms in Australia to represent and tell their stories, not only of the lived experiences here, but also how they are connected to home. Uh, we're starting to see that uh, governments like Australia are taking uh, an initiative to engage with Pacific diaspora through business councils, uh, engagement with research centers like ours to do more research in the Pacific and of course in the diaspora. Um, in terms of opportunities for cultural exchange, but there needs to be more. Uh, and that's where um, uh, the diaspora comes through because a lot of the business, I, I see the potential of Samoan, Coco, and Taro owners selling within the markets here. It's starting, but it's not good. No, it's not as big as we want it to be. But I also see us selling Sydney-made um, Pacific T-shirts and sending them off to Samoa and then wearing, because there is an economy that we haven't really... See, uh, sort of explore the potential, all right? And so um, even the way that we look at diaspora tourism, you know, there was a, you know, people was like, how can we improve tourism? Part of that is also catering for the diaspora. So many of us are going back home for funerals, weddings, family reunions. Uh, the tourism market is catered to the family um, white um, tourist that comes in and spends their time at the resort but nothing catered to us diaspora who come home with the thousands of dollars to pump back to the economy. So it's a back and forth. It's also breaking within uh, our communities, the importance of diaspora to our communities and our, our countries back home, but also an onus to us here uh, to break, but also share the awareness about the Pacific here in Australia, but also breaking some of these um, ceilings that we have uh, whether it be through political participation. It's fantastic that we are there in the arts and sports, but we need to do better in education and we need to do better in the politics in this country because there's a lot that the diaspora can contribute here as well. Totally. I've been involved previously in supporting various initiatives with the diaspora, including an initiative called Pacifica Achievement to Higher Education. And that was all about being able to create vocational and career aspirations amongst Pacifica communities in Western Sydney. And our motto is, when one achieves, we all succeed. Amen. So it's this reciprocal mm -hmm. view, again, that we're talking about, the relationally driven, the, the holistic view of our communities that we can also benefit here in the diaspora, in the islands, but also it's a learning point for non-Pacific people to value mm -hmm. our holistic views and potentially integrate such perspectives into Western modernity. We've got time for 30-second answers to one quick question, which is around this idea of Indigenous knowledges from Australia. And I believe we can, if we are going to really privilege Pacific Indigenous perspectives in the region, we really do need to also privilege Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander perspectives here in Australia. Would you agree? Yes. 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 <laughs> I want to I give you a 30-second answer on Please. this one. I've been working in the media reporting um, for local, regional and international media for 20 years. 
And there is a program by DFAT where they invite a journalist, a well-known journalist from Australia to come visit Samoa and chat to us. Not a single Indigenous or Torres Strait Islander um, journalist has visited. And um, in my research on media, I have continuously asserted the fact that um, Indigenous journalists in Australia share the same challenges that Pacific Island journalists have, which is uh, we, we share the same nuances in terms of covering our communities. There's about the same number of journalists, Indigenous journalists in Australia as there are in the whole media in Samoa. There's not that many. So you have the, the challenge of like the numbers and then also resource constraints. And then training, because you also need to be trained a certain way to cover your community. So I've always asserted that um, just from a media perspective, that the Pacific media, sorry, Australian media can really benefit from learning from uh, Indigenous journalists and having more. Mm, I completely agree. And then I think that would really reshape the conversation and the way in which Australia holds and uh, exercises influence in the region. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas Podcast. For more resources, including a transcript, visit the Sydney Ideas website at sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen ideas. The conversation you heard is recorded from a live public event at the University of Sydney on the land of the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation. We acknowledge the tradition of custodianship and law of the country and we pay our respects to those who have cared and continue to care for country.